Hey folks, welcome to another edition of the Cast. I am your host, Charlie Barons, and we are, of course, sponsored by Jolly Good Soda. Today, my guest is comedian, writer, performer, Joey Clift. Uh, Joey's also a good buddy of mine. In fact, we are currently pitching a show right now, so I figure it'd be fun to bring him on uh, on the podcast, talk about his journey. Uh, he's an enrolled member in the Cowlitz Indian Tribe uh, based in Washington, That the the tribe is now he lives in los angeles but uh you know native representation in hollywood has always been something that has sucked historically but uh joey kind of gives you the lay of the land currently um there are several native shows on uh the various networks right now and uh hoping that that only continues going up and up and up as i said we are working on a show ourselves we have been working on this show for geez louise it's been almost two years that uh, we've been working on some capacity or another, and we're finally in the uh, process of pitching it. So anyway, we, we dive into that pitching process and just uh, his journey to become a comedian. So if you're interested in any of that, you are going to really enjoy this podcast. Also, I do want to give you an update. Uh, we've been talking last week. We were talking about uh, a few merch things we were doing where 100% of the proceeds were going to Ukrainian refugees. Uh, thanks to all of you who got uh, Watch Out for Deer koozies or the Midwest Nice t-shirts in the past week. We were able to raise 3640 bucks for care.org, uh, which is a organization that we vetted as best we could and all the cash is going right to uh, help those refugees. So thank you all for doing that. Uh, again, 100% of the proceeds we were able to donate. Also, we've got shows coming up. Thanks to Fargo for coming out. Jeez, that that was, it was a very fun week last week. Two shows in Fargo. So I went up a little early, did some sketches with Miles. One of the sketches, uh, I don't know if you saw it or not, but there was a snow squall Holy smokes. Uh, I had not, I was sitting there in Miles's kitchen. We were eating dinner. He bought it. Yep. So it was his turn, you know, it was date night, but we were sitting there eating uh, some sandwiches. And uh, then we both got a alert from the National Weather Service on our phone. It said snow squall is coming. It, it didn't, you know, talk to me like that, but that was how I read it. And I was like, what is a snow squall? I've been living in the Midwest my whole life, and I don't think I've ever encountered a snow squall. Um, spoiler alert, uh, in case you're Googling it right now. A snow squall is basically a big, windy, blizzard, whiteout type thing. Uh, I think. I, I already forgot what I read when I Googled it. But that, that was basically what it ended up being. So, of course, Miles and I look at the National Weather Service thing, which says, stay inside. Stay inside. The snow squall is coming. Uh, we read that, and uh, then we immediately went outside to, you know, see what all the fuss was about, you know? Just like just like tornadoes, uh, snow squalls, you got to see them in person just so you know what you're dealing with. So, of course, as we're out there, and it was freezing in Fargo, too, so this was not pleasant. There was no reason for us to be out there on the porch having a couple beers, but we were, and then we decided to shoot a video. So if you want to see that video... It's up on the socials. It uh, it was fun. It was a good time to shoot. And I'll just give you a little bit of a teaser. We were like, what if this day was like uh, just a normal spring day in, in the Midwest? And we just sort of treated it like that. And it was it really helped because the backdrop was an absolute blizzard. 
And uh, I still have frostbite on my fingers from that shoot. So that was fun. So, yeah, that was Fargo. Thanks for everyone coming out. Miles also did five minutes off the top. So he did really good. I think he's going to start a stand-up tour now. I don't know if he knows that yet. Uh, Coming up, what do we have? Oh, we're going to be in Michigan for a show. And then Duluth. Uh, Duluth, we got a couple shows. And then Pacific Northwest, we're going to Tacoma, Spokane, Portland, and then a bunch of shows in Ohio, Columbus, Dayton, Cleveland. And if you want to find out where those shows are, what the dates are, all you have to do is do what I do when I want to know what I'm spo- where I'm supposed to be on a particular day. Just go to charliebarons.com, hit the tour uh, tab, and it just pops up. So, um, yeah, so that's the deal. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Cast. You know you can follow us on all the social medias at Cast, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, that's enough chit-chat. Let's get to my conversation with Joey Clift. I don't have my own podcast, but like I guess on enough people's podcasts that I was like, how can I make this so I'm like a good guest? <laughs> so I yeah. got like this set up and all this shit and yeah. You should, are you going to do your own podcast? Uh, I mean, I've had my own podcast before. Um, right now, I'm like just fortunately so busy with, um, you know, just like, writing and Hollywood shit and stuff like that, that I'm like, I, I'm not sure if I've got the time to produce one, but it's like, I kind of want to, cause like podcasting is fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is fun. It's a nice way to like connect with people, I think. And also, um, you know, in, in this case, it's like familiar, familiarize yourself on issues that you're not familiar with, but kind of interested in, but it's definitely one of those things where like, once you jump in, you got to commit every week, you know, which is in oh, order yeah. to kind of make it go, which is always sort of the, that's a daunting task about starting some things like this, you know, like once you go, you got to go. So. Oh yeah. Like I remember I, um, I co-hosted a wrestling pod, a pro wrestling podcast with friends a couple of years ago. And it's like, <laughs> we tried to get like really, you know, regularly with releases and stuff like that. And we had like a pretty good listenership. We had like, I think, I think we topped out at like 20,000 listeners or something like that. And it was, it was just so like, we would record three episodes a week just so we could like get ahead of things. Yeah. But like, then it's like, oh, you're just like in a room with these dudes talking about something that you like used to like for like right. nine hours. But then like by hour four of talking about it, you're like, I'm not sure if I like this thing anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You gotta be, uh. That is true. It can't just be like this itch you've been wanting to scratch. And then once it's scratched, uh, it's satisfied and over. It's got to be like this bottomless pit of, especially if you're going to get that hyper specific, you know? Yeah. It's like if you, like if somebody was like, hey, Charlie, you really like Batman? You want to have a podcast about Batman? And you said, yeah, sure. I love Batman. And then it's like, okay, cool. Talk about him for 12 hours a day. I mean, I really just like the Dark Knight was, yeah. was really it. That's where I maxed out, you know? Yeah, you're just like, I, I just wanted to talk about the Joker for 15 minutes. I yeah. don't want my entire life to be like, I don't know, spending six hours deconstructing Calendar Man or some shit, <laughs> you know? I mean, Comic-Con would be cool, but aside from that, you know? But what if Comic-Con was your entire, every when you woke up, it was Comic-Con, and when you went to bed, oh it was God. Comic-Con? <laughs> No, thank you. I've done that. Have you gone to Comic Con? Nah, I've I've never been to Comic Con. I've uh, I'm like, 
I would say I'm pretty much like kind of a filthy casual as far as my like nerd enjoyment stuff goes. You know, it's like I watch all the Marvel movies and stuff like that. But like I like I guess that I just don't like I don't really want to wait nine hours in line to see a trailer for a movie that I can see on the Internet three minutes after it's released. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Are you you a Comic-Con guy at all? No, I mean, I've gone there for work several times, like just to yeah. interview people. And I, I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think it's really uh, fun, you know, but um, am I, I am not that into any, um, any one particular thing enough to like go to Comic-Con to, to see it. My fandom would not be enough to bring me there. It'd have to be some sort of work thing. You know. I mean, I'm, I'm to the, but yeah, I, I had a similar deal where I had a couple of jobs that like, you know, I had like the potential to go to Comic Con, but it was just sort of like, "Hey, do you want to get crammed in a hotel room with like nine other people?" Or yeah, something? I know. And it's like, no, nah, yeah. I could just, I could just do this one remote. But um, I mean, I'm to the point where this might just be an age thing. Where like, growing up, I would like if the bell time for a pro for like WWF Raw at the Tacoma Dome was six p.m., my brother and I would show up at like ten a.m. And like I used to be like that into like that kind of thing. And now I'm to a a point where it's like if my favorite band is playing a show in Los Angeles, I'm going to like call the venue day of and be like, yo, what time do they take the stage? I don't want to see a (laughs) second of the openers if they're like like when they're doing the encore. That's when I'm like cleaning up my like seat and like getting ready to go. (laughs) I guess that's. That's really just part of uh, of getting older and not having time. Uh, you know, especially when you're seeing a band too, uh, you've got this thing, I always have this, where I'm like, is this music good enough for me to lose part of my hearing? You know, <laughs> like that's it, because it, it's never, how, how is it that um, every single concert you go to, it's like, yeah, you better really bring earplugs or you're, you're in, you're just going to be going to bed. There's nothing worse than going to bed, like kind of drunk with just that ringing in your ears, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like I bring concerts to, I bring earplugs to concerts. And if I don't, I get really stressed out. I know. But, I'm Cause literally I'm like, I, and then you read all those articles of like, yeah, every minute you're doing this, you're losing X amount of hearing 30 years from now. And then I'm like, this is, this music's just not that good. I hate the worst. The worst is not a concert. The worst is when you go to one of those, those, shitty clubs you know in right. LA or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or in vegas or whatever that's sponsored by like gray goose or something and it's just right. a, a, a terrible dj terrible people and a bunch of flaming bottles you know like the firecracker in the top of the bottles and they're just flaming and they're bringing right tables I i'm mean, like I'm just- i can't i can't lose hearing for this yeah, I mean, I'm to the point with that stuff where it's like, yeah, if you're like, you know, going out with friends, or you're going to like, you know, a birthday party or something like that. I will like if I'm going to, to a situation like that where I know I'm probably not going to be having a good time, I'll like set a timer in my phone for 45 minutes. And like if I'm if 40, if that timer goes off and I'm not like having enough fun to justify the hearing loss, I'm just like, <laughs> eh, I'm just going to quietly leave. <laughs> oh, that's how you do it. You just sneak out. huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like. Yeah, because it's sort of like, especially if it's like a party like that at a club, it's like, oh, I don't know, it's fine. Everybody's going to be too drunk to like remember exactly how long I was there for or not, you know. 
Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's the logical way to do it. I, of course, suffer with from this Midwest uh, ism that I have. So I, I feel guilty. I got to at least say goodbye <laughs> to the person whose birthday it is, you know? Well, if we're like close, I'll do that. If it's just like, you know, like somebody who I did one show with once five years ago or whatever, then it's yeah. just sort of like, eh, I don't know. They saw that I showed up, you know? You made your appearance. You're peacing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thanks for coming on, man. And I, you know, I wanted to... I've been a fan of yours for a while. I don't remember where it was I first saw your stuff, but then, you know, and I'm not sure if the audience really knows this. My audience knows this. Actually, I don't think they do at all because I haven't really said much about it. Maybe a little here and there. But then when we start working on the show, uh, which I, I guess we won't really go that much into since we're currently pitching it. Uh, yeah, but I do uh, want to. It's, it's Star Wars Episode Ten. It's Star... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Game of Thrones Season Nine, Star Wars Episode Ten crossover <laughs> yeah. with a no. real Midwest edge. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, we we'll go into like uh, some parts of it because I think I want to give um, you know the audience a little bit of insight into what it's like pitching a show for a network and uh, and just kind of the process. It's my first time really doing it. I've done it in some capacity, but never really. Um, never really come this far in doing it. And I know you've done it many, many times. But anyway, um, your comedy is um, is very uh, specific in some cases, in some videos, and it's looking at how native, um, the native people have, have been, you know, sort of treated in America when it comes to sports mascots or, you know, um, just, the whole like microaggressions and uh, and all that, but you, you do it in a way that's very funny and um, I, I and very like unique. I'm thinking of the uh, bear video you did on Comedy Cent uh, Central to be specific. Uh, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But anyway, I've been a fan for a long time. So when we were doing this show, um, it, I was super excited when you came on board. So thanks for doing that. I think you've just made it uh, the pitch way better than uh, it was. Um, and uh, yeah, now we are out taking it out. So uh, that is where we are now. But I want to start with sort of your story. Uh, where are you from in these United States? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Joey Clift. How's it going, everybody? Um, yeah, uh, so uh, I'm a comedian, TV writer. I'm an enrolled member of the uh, Cowlitz Indian Tribe, which is based out of like southern Washington State. And I uh, grew up on the Tulalip Indian Reservation, which is about like 45 minutes north of Seattle. And um, yeah, I grew up just like really loving comedy, you know, loving shows like, you know, The Simpsons, King of the Hill, sort of like late night era Conan and stuff like that. But because I didn't see any like Native American comedians on TV growing up, I didn't think I was like allowed to work in comedy. So uh, instead, I went to school for what to me felt like the next best thing, which is to be like a small market TV weather guy. Um, <laughs> you were you were you did journalism, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah and you that is that is definitely not the next best thing. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like now it's just like it's like oh yeah, comedian like TikToker like Twitch yeah. streamer and like weather guys like yeah, I don't know. It's like it's top ten. It's top ten. But back in the day, it was you're probably right. It was number two by, yeah. by a long shot. What or I, I'm sports sure, guy. Uh, I'm sure that's probably like, is that why you went, got into journalism at all? Of just sort of like, oh, you wanted to, you wanted to like be on TV and yeah. comedy stuff, but it's like growing up there, you didn't, you didn't have a friend who worked in Hollywood. So you didn't think that like 
how you didn't know how to do it, but like news felt more realistic, you know? Yeah, I grew up in a very practical household. So being yeah. uh, having that, which people saw as a job. So I called it like a shadow career. It was. Yeah, like, for sure. You know, it's like it got me close, but sure as hell was not what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then it's like you're interviewing somebody for a news story and you say like, what at the time you don't even know is a bit, but you start doing a bit and like they laugh and you're just like, oh, this like fueled my soul in a way that like, yes. you know, reporting on just like a car accident didn't or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, like I when I was uh, going to college, um, a college TV show that I wrote, produced and co-starred in ended up winning like a big national college comedy award, uh, beat out people like Ithaca, Harvard and a ton of Ivy League schools. And like when I, I remember getting this trophy and thinking to myself, like, wow, this is going to look really cool on my news desk in Post Falls, Idaho or whatever. <laughs> and um, fortunately, a bunch of my professors kind of pulled me aside and were like, hey, you know, you could just like actually work in comedy. Right. And um, that was about like uh, that was in like 2010s. Then I moved to Los Angeles and um, I've been in Los Angeles just, you know, hustling in the L.A. improv, sketch comedy, storytelling, TV writing, whatever scene ever since. So what was your childhood like um, and, and what sort of made it um, made your inclination be to go for um, for news? Was it just that you didn't see any other uh, native writers or actors on TV or, or was it, you know, your folks? Uh, what was it like growing up for you, basically? Uh, yes, my my mom is. Uh, let's see who's a famous newscaster, I can say. Uh, my mom, is, no, my, my dad's Larry King and my mom is <laughs> famous newscaster. Um, yeah, uh, no, uh, so my deal is, um, I knew that I really loved making people laugh when I was in like middle school, junior high, but I was definitely like, I definitely had stage fright. I was definitely kind of like a shy kid a little bit. Like I was sarcastic to my friends, but in front of crowds, I would like clam up. And um, when I was uh, in junior high, um, one of my one of the teachers at the school um, was just like a really motivated teacher who really wanted to like do right by his students. So he put together like sort of like a like a, a TV station in the junior high school specifically for students to like, you know, learn AV stuff, but also to do kind of like a morning announcements news program every day, you know, at the end of second period where the, the stories were just like the lunch specials or homecoming tickets or whatever. And um, I was like his, I was like an assistant or whatever, where I would just, you know, like kind of help behind the scenes in junior high. And then when I moved to high school, that teacher also moved to the high school and he like transferred all of his TV equipment and built like a TV studio and stuff like that with him. And I just like slowly kind of started kind of creeping in, taking classes, signing up for the um, the news class. And then I was like, you know, kind of the guy behind the scenes with that until um, uh, the regular weather guy, um, like he was just like sick or had a sore throat or something like that. So like 10 minutes before we were supposed to go live, he was just like, Joey, you're the only person here who's not like doing something. Will you like report the weather? And I was like, nervous but i was also just like oh my shot you know yeah. <laughs> my shot to do the weather in front of a thousand high school students so you know i put on the tie threw on a button-up shirt that was like you know lying on a hook and um you know just kind of like jumped into this like you know kind of funny wacky like catchphrase filled weather report and i remember like afterwards feeling like you know kind of like the high that you feel after doing a show um you know leaving the classroom and not really thinking too much about it but then like as i was walking from my second period class to my third period class like probably about a dozen like 
other kids stopped me, like other teens, high school students, and were just like, hey, were you the guy that did the weather? That was so funny, dude. So that was like my first real, I would say like positive feedback from a crowd doing comedy. So I think that for me, like I associated, oh, like I didn't associate the, oh, I like doing comedy and make people laugh part of it. I associated the weather part of it. So I just kind of figured I would like follow that, you know, through, you know, college, university, career stuff, you know. And then I realized, you know, late into college, oh, it's the laughing, the making people laugh part that I like more than the, you know, understanding what high and low pressure systems are or whatever, you know. Right. Um, And was your family supportive of all of that? Uh, Did they get it right away? Yeah, I would say that my, so my, um, uh, my, my parents divorced when I was pretty young. My, um, my, I lived with my mom, my dad, my dad's super cool. We get along really well. Um, both of my parents have like really, I would say like kind of freelance individualistic kind of like careers and personalities. Like my dad's like a freelance carpenter and my mom is like, uh, an artist slash teacher slash, you know, freelance creative person. She like paints murals for a living and also substitute teaches, teaches our classes for the community center in uh, the place she lives and stuff like that. And um, so I don't think that there was like a push for me necessarily to like be a doctor. My parents were just like, you know, happy that I wasn't like a drug addict or something. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And um, so, you know, I would say that like they were, I don't think that they totally understood what I did, but like whenever I would do like, you know, like comedy shows at high school or stuff like that, they would definitely like both show up and be supportive. And they were like, I think that they were more like, proud and happy that I found something that made me happy than like understanding necessarily like the ins and outs of what I do. Like, I feel like even when I talk to like my mom and dad now about what my career is, it's sort of like, you know, like I don't think either of them even like know what Netflix is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. But so, okay. So you, you do push, push forward. Um, what, what was when you first moved to LA, what were you doing? Uh, so when I first moved to LA, I, um, yeah, I, I drove to LA in my in a, in a beat up 1986 Honda Accord that was like burning oil. It like barely survived the trip from Washington. Um, was it one I, that you had to refill with oil at every stop? I had a uh, actually, like that yeah, once. yes, oh yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I had uh, my trunk. I had a box of like oil, like uh, like antifreeze, like coolant, yeah, like all the things of just like oh, it sounds like something's off for the car. Yeah. I'll, I guess I'll just like see. I'll just fill some of this up and hope that that works. <laughs> Um, so yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I had to like refill all that stuff. I, um, uh, like uh, fortunately, like my brother, he's like a car mechanic for, um, like kind of for his profession. And, um, you're like, he like manages car places and just kind of works in sort of the auto repair industry. And, um, he, uh, like moved to Inglewood kind of like a couple of years before I wanted to move to Los Angeles. And, um, he like just got like a good, you know, managing a Jiffy Lube kind of job or something like that. And uh, so I had like a, so I basically crashed on his couch for my first couple of years of Los Angeles and Inglewood. And then while I was doing that, I um, got like an assistant job through Alumni Connections, assisting the guys that created uh, Scare Tactics on Sci-Fi. Um, uh, being like an assistant to executives, that's kind of like a good foot in the door job in Hollywood because you're like sitting on pitches, hearing meetings, meeting like, uh, you know, like people who are accomplished in Hollywood and stuff like that. And just kind of like seeing how the process works. And, um, you know, while I was doing that, like my nights, I was uh, getting super involved at like a comedy theater called the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and like Second City Hollywood and kind of like the those sorts of comedy theaters and just like doing that hustle and grind, you know? 
Yeah, so you were an improv guy to begin. I was like, I was an improv guy for about, I would say, about eight months. And then I just kind of like started taking sketch comedy writing classes, like Saturday Night Live, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I just like felt like, it's like, I, I felt like improv was fun, but I'm not like an actor. So I kind of felt like, oh, like, I feel like more of a writer. I feel like sketch comedy is something that I like am getting better at faster, for lack of a better term. Right. Um, so I kind of like followed that sketch comedy bug for like a couple of years. Um, uh, you know, did a ton of shows at UCB. Was on like a house team. I think I'm like the only Native American person ever to get on a house team with the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles. There were two Native dudes in New York that got on teams. And um, yeah, wow, that that's fascinating right there. Is that still oh, the yeah. case? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's the it's still the case. Part of that is due to like the theaters closing down due to the pandemic. Um, something that I I'm, well, really I'm passionate sorry, about. which which one is closing down? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's okay. like it's just like they haven't done any shows since you know March of 2020. You know? Oh wow. Um, yeah, it's just uh, if you think about it, it's like it's like I feel like stand up you can do a little bit more COVID safe just because it's like one person on stage with a microphone. But like if you're doing a sketch where you've got to like, I don't know, vomit food into somebody else's mouth or something, it's yeah. like that's probably not the most pandemic safe right. thing right. to do. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, like I'm, yeah, I'm the only native person to ever get on a house team at UCB in Los Angeles. And then there's only three total, including uh, L.A. and New York, which are kind of the two main cities that UCB have had uh, classes and theaters and stuff. And, um, yeah, that's something I've like tried to spend a lot of my time in the LA comedy scene, just trying to like, you know, like get more opportunities for other native comedians. Cause it's like, I know, like, I know so many super funny native comedians kind of in, you know, Hollywood that are doing great stuff, but not getting a lot of opportunities in like mainstream spaces. And UCB is like where, you know, second city and the late night shows and stuff you use is kind of a farm league. So, um, yeah. So I pushed for a long time and in 2018, put together the first ever showcase of Native American comedians at UCB that they'd done in the theaters, like 20 year history. Uh, it was on Columbus Day because when else would it be? <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and since then, I've just, just like really tried to kind of like use my position to like get other folks in the door, you know? Yeah. Why do you think that it has taken Hollywood so long to embrace authentic Native voices in content? Um, you know, I mean, there's obviously the historical uh, roles, which are pretty caricature and, you know, a lot are just written by white folks and the depictions are pretty, pretty poor. Why do you think it's taken so long for Hollywood to catch up to the reality of um, of what Native life is like? I mean, I think that there's like I think that there's a lot of things at play um you know I, I think that uh folks don't really realize that like i don't know it's like a lot of native uh like a lot of like a lot of like the mistreatment of natives is like within our lifetimes and within our parentless lifetimes and stuff like that like like i think it was on the books legal in colorado up until last year to like kill a native person <laughs> like really? it was like yeah yeah like that they finally struck that law from the books in 2021 so, um, you know, I, I think that like just in terms of like the way that, you know, this country has been toward natives, I think that like we have a lot of like, you know, recent and like recent wounds that we're healing from that have kind of made like 
the portrayal of native people may be like not a priority for like a lot of folks in the media. Um, I think that the reason for, um, I would say this recent upswell in native, you know, not just representation on TV, but also things like sports mascots changing and stuff like that is um, the, uh, uh, in 2014 to 2016, there was like a big um, protest it, um, in Standing Rock in, I think it was North Dakota. Um, it was uh, a lot of native folks protesting like a water pipeline that was uh, kind of going through their traditional territory, breaking trees and stuff like that. And um, it was like, you know, there were like a lot of folks protesting and then there were like riot cops like hosing down like, you know, elders in like sub-zero temperatures and stuff like that. So it was like, you know, just a real like fight of these, you know, folks like fighting for their land and their, you know, treaty rights and stuff. And um, up until that point, like the media just didn't really cover native news stories like, you know, think the major media outlets, um, you know, uh, newspapers and stuff like that. And um, when the Standing Rock uh, protest with the Standing Rock water protectors started happening, like uh, people started just filming these things on their cell phone, like, you know, these protest lines and stuff like that. And they started going crazy viral on Twitter. And it kind of hit a point where like the media sort of had to pay attention to it because like everybody on Twitter was talking about it. Mm -hmm. So that that was kind of like one of the first times in like modern history, you know, like five years ago where the media really covered like contemporary native issues in like a real way. And um, I think since then it's like opened a lot of people's eyes to, you know, not just like paying attention to like native voices in the media, but also like, you know, I think folks realizing that there's like a lack of native representation in the media. So like um, there's around 10 million native people on the US census, which is similar population size as the Jewish American population and the Chinese American population but we're like seen so seldomly in the media that we're referred to as like an invisible minority. Um, like you only really see us um, in like, you know, 18th century context where like we're wearing, you know, headdresses and loincloths and all that kind of thing, you know, like old Westerns and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that, you know, the, the Standing Rock Water Protectors actions is something that like really opened people's eyes to like all of this stuff and finally caused people to like listen to you know, like native folks and our plight. And I think that that, like, you know, me putting this UCB show on, um, you know, Reservation Dogs being on FX and being an amazing show and Sterling Harjo getting great opportunities. Um, Rutherford Falls on Peacock, which just came out last year. These are two of the first ever, these are the two first ever TV shows in the history of US television, like created by native people, about native people, largely written by native people, starring native actors, starring native actors, playing native characters. And like, I really think that's kind of like on the back of the Standing Rock protests and people finally realizing that, you know, native folks are still here and we're going through stuff and we have, you know, cool stories and interesting things going on. And you should like tell our stories the right way and not just like, you know, uh, a white dude who saw a John Wayne movie once thinking that he can write like a 17th century biopic, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, if you even just look at uh, the the Cleveland Indians and you look yeah. at the the logo that was just commonplace for so long. And um, it, I mean, it's so commonplace that you don't even see what it is. You just see how oh, it's, it's the Indians, you know, and then you look at that logo and you're like, whoa, <laughs> like that's yeah. like that's something that you that's that you would um, I feel like if it disappeared and just reappeared, everybody would see it with fresh eyes and and be like, yeah, that, that, what is this, a 1950s cigarette ad, you know? <laughs> and, 
But uh, but no, it, it, it's a team that's making a, t- a ton of money off it. I mean, why do you think it took so long for that clearly caricature-y, um, you know, poor representation um, to to be removed? Why do you think that took so long? Yeah, so... I think that with that and uh, something that I hear online a lot with like native sports mascots is people are like, why is this just being talked about? And, you know, that's something that like native folks have been like protesting native sports mascots like the Cleveland Indians for like 60, 70, 80 years. It's just that like 2019, 2020 is when people finally started paying attention, you know, Um, or non-natives started paying attention. And, um, you know, I think that there's like I think that there's like a lot of things going on there i think that one of the things is that like there's clearly like a lot of money in these sports teams and for you know the cleveland indians or the washington dc nfl team or whatever to like change their names that's like a billion dollar industry that all of a sudden they have to like rebrand and refigure out so you know i I think that um i think that a lot of these organizations have done a lot of work to like try to uh like um make it seem like native folks are okay with it or that it's not that big of a deal, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So like um, the Washington Post um, did a survey that gets thrown around a lot about native sports mascots like 10, 20 years ago or something like that, that said that like 90% of native folks think that native mascots are great or something like that. And um, something that like, if you look at the... Like if you look at the actual like metrics of the study, uh, they called like 500 self-identified native folks mm-hmm. and like se- five, 500 self-identified native folks specifically in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. So like, you know, we don't know if those are like enrolled members of tribes. We don't know if that's just like a guy that took a DNA test. You know, um, we don't necessarily know if that's somebody who's like educated about this issue. But I feel like this is sort of like you know, for lack of a better term, kind of propaganda put out by the teams to get, um, uh, to like lessen the, um, realization from people that it's like shitty to have an entire people boiled down to a caricature. And there are like real, um, like there are real effects like native mascots. It's like, uh, like we talked about earlier, um, uh, like native folks up until fairly recently have only really been shown in the media as like old west characters like we don't kind of exist in the modern day and um native sports mascots kind of like play into that stereotype so much and um like there have been a lot of studies about this having like negative psychological effects on like native kids like um if you only see yourself portrayed as a cartoon or something that only existed 200 years ago or whatever it has like real negative effects on your psyche and self-esteem like Native kids have, uh, I think, the the lowest, some one of the lowest high school graduation and college enrollment rates of like any ethnicity. Like native suicide rates are like one of the highest of any ethnicity, and part of it is that like you're only seeing yourself as a sports mascot and not as like a person who exists in 2022 who like works at a bank or whatever, you know, just like kind of people uh, as a people in a contemporary light. So like, you know, I think that. Um, I think that a lot of these sports teams are doing everything that they can or up until the changes recently um, to like kind of play down those statistics and play up kind of like the made up statistics of like all the native people we talk to think it's fine. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What about the current team still in existence? Like the Blackhawks, the Chiefs, the Braves, 
Um, is there a situation where, is there an example of a team uh, that's doing it in a way that's okay or no? So I think it's like, I think it's a, it's a complex topic. Um, my, uh, like my personal two cents is that, um, and like, you know, I can't speak for everybody. Just of course, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, is that like, I feel like a lot of these teams will use language like we're honoring you or something like that when they refer to like native sports mascots. And a lot of what like, a lot of what like I feel about that is that like, yeah, you say that you're honoring us, but by selling Atlanta Braves toothbrushes, you're making a billion dollars. Maybe like help us. Maybe like, right. you know, cut off a certain percentage of that money that you dedicate to like tribes that need it, you know? Um, and, you know, so that's kind of my two cents is like, I would like to see teams with, you know, ultimate, ideally there would be no native sports mascots, but if you like must have native sports mascots, ideally you should partner with a tribe who's like territory is the original land that like your team plays and give them like a, you know, a cut of funding, have them help you with like branding for the team. Um, you know, just like use it to like actually honor that tribe instead of like creating a weird pastiche of an entire race of people. Cause like, I don't know. I mean, that's another thing too, is there's like 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States. There's hundreds more at the state level. And we're like all different cultures, like the, the, tr the cultural differences from one tribe to another might be as big as the cultural differences from like the UK to Egypt. So right. like, you know, we don't all wear headdresses. Like my tribe were more like cedar hats and longhouses as opposed to totem pole or as opposed to teepees. And, um, you know, and it's also 2021. So we live in houses and have cell right. phones and like, you know, right. that's even that was like kind of a cultural specific from years and years ago. Um, I think that the team that's like gotten the closest is probably the Florida Seminoles. Um, cause they, you know, they're named after like an actual tribe. They, they partnered with the tribe to like, you know, make sure that like the regalia on the mascot is like accurate and not just like something you'd buy in a Halloween store. I think that the colors of the team are like the same colors that are used in the Seminole tribes flag. Like, so I, I think that like, and I think that they get some sort of profit sharing and stuff like that. So I think that they're the closest, but like that said, like I've definitely, you know, heard of a lot of Seminole folks that like are seeing all that still like not cool with it. So like, right. you know, I, it's, so it's, it's tough to say like necessarily what the 100% right way to do it is. I, I think that part of it too is that like, because for the longest time, native sports mascots were the only representation we got in the media. It's like even more glaring now than it would be if we had a hundred native TV shows right now, you know? Right. Um, so I, I think that like, you know, it's like maybe the Seminoles would be a little bit more cool if they were like, uh, you know, like if native stories were told in the media in like a more accurate way, but like, because it's not, I think it's like, you know, it's easy to look at that stuff as kind of like jarring and like, eh, we could do better. Well, on that topic, you have uh, found success in writing authentic native stories and sketches. When was the uh, first time outside of UCB, you know, um, um, you know, get, you doing the showcase there and, and being the first native uh, house team member in LA. Um, what was your first uh, hint of success in selling a show or a sketch? And how long did that take from moving to LA? So um, 
Uh, okay, so a couple of answers to that question. Um, I I sold my first sketch to a comedy website in like 2011, so like shortly after I moved to LA, and um, I was really excited about it. They shot it. I like you know went into the um, the writers' offices of this comedy website and like worked with like the people who um, ran it to like punch it up and make sure it was in good shape. Um, but like the production company that hired to shoot it just didn't do a good job. So I got an email like the week after they I got like, you know, photos on set of my sketch being shot. I got an email from them that was like, hey, so this didn't really cut together very well. So we're not going to release it. Well, so, really? they, they also did not pay me for it. Was I think it's like funnier to die or what? what nah, it was. Eh, I mean, they're not doing stuff anymore. So I was at crack.com. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And like everybody who worked there was super cool. It's just like you know it's kind of like them's the breaks sometimes yeah um, i so you know i think that like hollywood is a weird industry where it's like tough to um there are a lot of times where we'll get like 99 yards down the field and at the one yard line some other thing will happen that'll cause the ball to get fumbled you know yeah and um so i feel like i've had that kind of thing a lot in my career i, I would say the first like big successes um I um, wrote for like uh, wrote a really funny sketch with Dan Van Kirk, who's a super funny uh, stand up who does a lot of stuff um, that got released on Nerdist in like 2013. Um, I wrote on like a relaunch of Looney Tunes on Cartoon Network in like 2014. So I got to write like character named Bugs Bunny line of dialogue. What's up, Doc? And like get paid for it and mean it, which is really cool. <laughs> that is cool. Um, I would say that like my first my first thing that felt like uh you know uh like a big success to me was i um like i wrote uh like for the longest time i didn't necessarily know how to do comedy about native stuff like i grew up on a reservation and like you know i'm super involved in native hollywood but it's like i feel like whenever i would mention native stuff to like other kind of non-native comedians and like producers and stuff they would sort of like steer me away from writing about it and I think it's just because like they'd never seen it before, so they didn't think that like people would like it. And I think that I had like other friends who kind of, you know, I would have long conversations with about like how weird the Disney Pocahontas movie is and stuff like that. And, you know, I had other friends that would kind of like push me toward, you know, kind of exploring that in my comedy a little bit more. Cause it's something that I'm, you know, clearly opinionated about. And um in 2018, I self-produced a like a comedy zine. That was like it was like a fashion catalog, but all of the models were like sort of bad native representation in the media. So it's like the crying Indian guy, and it was like the crying Indian guy from those old PSAs, and it was like, you know, one of the fashion items was just like uh like native tears. If you don't cry <laughs> over garbage, are you really native? You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. um and I like uh my mom's an artist. I had her illustrate it, which was really cool to work with her on something. And um Oh, that is cool. That yeah, is cool. Yeah, yeah. I and, saw um, that too. That 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 what you're talking about. So. Oh, dope, cool, yeah. yeah. And um, and it just uh, it's something that I just like self released, but it kind of just it just blew up. It like um, I think I sold out like five different pressings of it. And this is something I would like go to go to like the printer, print out copies. I would like mail them from my apartment. I had like a shoebox under my bed with all the like, uh, you know, all the like padded envelopes, like issues of it. Um. And yeah, I sold out like five pressings of it and um, it got like shared around the entertainment industry a lot. It got me on the radar of a lot of different just like cool, you know, producers, writers and stuff like that who had just like never seen a native comedy thing before. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I would say that like that 
sort of pushed me to um, kind of more earnestly try to set, try to do that UCB show. And then while I was doing that UCB show, I um, uh, like made that animated short that you were talking about, the the bear short, yeah. um, basically just to like have something to screen at this show. And then it like did really well there. So I started submitting it to the festival circuit and then it screened everywhere from like just for laughs to like the Smithsonian Museum. Yeah. It's <laughs> just like natives doing comedy, I guess, is uh, worth putting in the Smithsonian. And, um, you know, since then, I would say that like I've just gotten a lot of like really great opportunities to like create comedy centered around native stuff. So like the Comedy Central short that you talked about that came out last year, um, you know, the show we're developing. I'm writing on a really cool Netflix show called Spirit Rangers right now that's like about like native kids living their best lives, you know. Um, and yeah, I would say that like it's um, so yeah, I would say like 28. I, I had a lot of like little successes before then, but I would say 2018 is kind of when I felt like things kind of lock into place a little bit more in, in terms of just like making stuff that I like, making stuff that like spoke to me on any real level and making stuff that like, uh, you know, I like wanted to put out in the world that wasn't just like me writing 500 sketches about Batman or whatever. You right. Know? Yeah. So about like probably eight years. Yeah. It's such interesting. And by interesting, I mean, bad advice that that, <laughs> that comic gave you of, of don't, go into that because I feel like the best advice anyone can get in comedy is like, well, the best advice I got is write five facts about yourself and then write punchlines about that, you know? Yeah. And so just dive into the things that only you can talk about um, or you at least know about because that's got that authenticity and that. And you can make people understand anything about you, even the weirdest stuff, you know, and who you are is not weird at all. So, I mean, that, that seems like, like t terrible advice, but, um, that they, they said to not focus on that. So after being in this industry for so long, what is your best advice for like a new writer coming up, trying to do their, do their thing? I would say stay out of Hollywood. All the jobs are taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're uh, sick of competing for it. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> no, nah, nah, just kidding. There's plenty of jobs. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. So, um, well, so uh, to go back to something that something you said earlier, this will kind of dovetail into it. Is I think that for me, another reason that I didn't really like write about native stuff a ton. This is something I thought about recently. Is like being the only native involved in that's getting a lot of opportunities in the LA comedy scene and doing like a collaborative medium like sketch comedy or improv where you're writing usually for other people. Yeah. It's like, it's not like there was like a bunch of super funny native actors who were like getting a lot of opportunities in the LA comedy scene that I could like write native sketches for and have it not be weird, you know? Right. So, you know, I think that that's part of like, uh, folks rising up together is like important. Um, I, I think that a uh, couple bits of advice for writing. Um, I always just try to write stuff that like I want to see that I don't think is out there yet, you know. Um, and I think that if you like, it's like your first audience is yourself, you know. It's like if it makes you laugh, if it, if it, if you think it's interesting, if you think it's cool, then it's like for sure worth kind of following that thread as opposed to, you know, like you said, um, just kind of following what everybody else is doing. It's like how many comedians have written jokes about like Trump having small hands, you know, millions. Right. Um, right. How many comedians have written jokes about like sweat lodge wrongful, wrongful death lawsuits? <laughs> Probably just me in the 1491s, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, 
and I think that like rather than like um uh like rather than trying to just like race to write the best Donald Trump small hands joke or have the best Christopher Walken impression or whatever that's just like a weird kind of arbitrary arms race right um so rather than doing that why not just like focus on the like the stuff that makes you like uniquely weird or interesting you know um like one of the one of the first shows that I um ever sold was uh, a late night talk show where I interviewed celebrities about their cats because like I love cats and I started hosting a UCB show where I interviewed people about their cats and then I like started pitching it around places and um, like that was just me being like well I mean it's probably like weird to be like in your a guy in your 30s and love cats as much as I do but like I feel like there are probably other people who also love cats as much as I do. So why not make like a show about that? And like the live show was so cool. It was like, I would, um, like I would, after doing the show, I would see people in the audience with like wearing the most elaborate cat t-shirts that you've ever seen in your life with like whiskers painted on their faces with a look on their eyes that was clear that they've definitely never been to a UCB show before and probably never even been to a live comedy show before, but they were like having a good time. And then after the show, they would like, walk up to me and earnestly thank me for creating a show that made them feel like accepted for liking cats, you know? Mm. So I think it's like, that's an example of like understanding that like, there are probably other people who are weird in the same way that you're weird. And like, I think that like your comedy is like a perfect example of this, of like, just like the Midwest nice stuff that you do. And like, like I'm not from the Midwest. I've only ever visited Chicago, which I'm sure barely counts as the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, it counts. And it counts. Yeah. Oh, good. You did. Foo. Um, and but like, you know, seeing your videos and seeing the stuff that you do and seeing your comedy, it's like it's so relatable because like, oh, like I know people like that or I know I know what it's like to be like overly nice to a fault because like anxiety or guilt or whatever, you know. And, you know, even though I like didn't grow up in the Midwest, it's like I get it, you know. And And I think that by leaning into like that kind of stuff, it's like it's kind of like what makes you unique also is what makes you universal, you know? Yes. Yes. Hey, everyone. Do you like good soda in your brandy old fashions? Well, I've got the soda just for you. It's the Jolly Good Sour Power. It's an amazing soda. It makes any boring old-fashioned press absolutely amazing. Just a little bit of brandy. And a little bit of Jolly Good Sour Power float around top. And now you're cooking with gas. Jolly Good, of course, is exclusively sold in Wisconsin. But if you want to order it in any of the other great states, all you got to do is go to JollyGoodSoda.com. And I also want to thank Duluth Trading Company. They've been a great sponsor of the Cast and our videos for quite some time. They've got clothes that just, you know, it's, it's good for this time of year because it's spring essentially we're spring adjacent right now you know you could have a snow squall one day and the next day it's 58 degrees so the the deal here the secret is layers and Duluth has so many different varieties of clothes to choose from and you can just pull them off when you don't need them okay and you can pull them all off if you're you know gonna be working over there at Northern Exposure okay by the way little known fact my stripper name back in the day was ratchet strap yep it's true true story and uh i was exclusively uh you know removing uh 
cargo shorts with the little uh, hammer loop in them. Boy, this ad read got weird quick, didn't it? Anyway, if you want to check out Duluth Trading Company's stuff, check out DuluthTrading.com. And finally, folks, Merch Madness is upon us. Charlie, what do you mean by Merch Madness? Well, you've heard of March Madness. Why, yes, I have. Well, this is our play on words, Merch Madness. If you go to mandwalkman.com, we have some sweet deals on all different varieties of clothing every week. Basically, every time the March Madness deal goes into another round, like the Sweet 16 or the Grade 8 or, you know, uh, Final Four, the Awesome 2, whatever the heck. Uh, every time that happens, we are putting up a new merch deal. Right now, it's five bucks off a bunch of different varieties of t-shirts, and we have clearance shirts up there, so you can get some sweet shirts. And if you're thinking, Charlie, is this just your way of spring cleaning your merch line so you can come out with new designs? Kinda, yeah, we do have a lot of new designs coming, but these designs we are not gonna print again. So you wanna get them while the getting is good. You know, it's like a coupon. And if there's one thing I know about all you Midwest people is that you love coupons. So head on over to mandwalkmint.com and click on the merch tab. You can also go to cripescast.com and click on the merch tab too because we figured out how to do that on the internet. And that is it for our advertisement reads. Thank you for supporting these companies and the Mantwalkman website. It supports this podcast. Okie dokes. Back to the conversation with Joey Clift. I mean, if you think about it, we can watch a, uh, I mean, right now, Batman is out, right? And Batman's yeah. been a franchise forever. This is a dude who dresses as a bat and fights crime. It's very weird, not very realistic, you know, but somehow universally relatable in some way. And if you can make a guy dressing as a bat universally relatable, then your actual truth about your life you can make universally relatable. Yeah. Not just a guy that dresses like a bat, a billionaire who dresses like a <laughs> <Yeah>. bat. <laughs> Which actually makes it make a little bit more sense. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just accept. We, we're just like, oh, it's uh, oh, it's old Bruce dressing like a bat again. I don't know. How much is he worth? Billions of dollars? Eh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll roll with it. They shoot a bat signal into the sky. Yeah, a little implausible, but people wrap their heads around yeah, it. Yeah, it's just like, how much is he donating to the Gotham City Police? Oh, a lot? Oh, yeah, yeah whatever, mm, man. Okay, fair. But that's yeah, yeah. that actually brings us sort of to the idea of pitching a show, which you and I are doing right now. Um and uh, without saying too much uh, about the show, I don't, I, I don't, you know, when people are like, oh, I got a project, I can't talk about it. I never know why they can't talk about it, but I guess I'm just going to go ahead and not really say too much about it just in case it screws anything up. Do you know why they say we can't talk about it, by the way? So I think it's, I think that there's a couple, I, I get what you're talking about. Like, I think there's a couple things. I think that one of the reasons is like, like I always feel weird about, talking about things in the entertainment industry before there's like, you know, basically before like I get a paycheck or whatever, yeah. because like I said, things can fall apart at the one yard line. So um, like, like the, the, the cat show that I was talking about that I sold, I sold that in the room, two different places. Like at the end of the meeting, they were like, our lawyer will send you the paperwork. And in both cases, within a couple of weeks of them saying that the company shut down or that exec got fired. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like I sold it to like Comedy Central's Twitch Street channel 
or no, uh, Funnier Dies Twitch channel in like 2018. They even were like inviting me. They were like, okay, tomorrow we're doing a big premiere for the Twitch, for the Funnier Die Twitch stream. You should come on and promote this show of yours that we just bought. And then like, didn't hear anything from them for a week. And then I saw in the uh, the trades, the Hollywood kind of news outlets, uh, Funnier Die's uh, Twitch channel has shut down after massive layoffs. <laughs> no! And I'm, like, and I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, I got it. You know, I get it. It happens. No, I, so, you know, I think like that's part of it of like, you know, I like I, um, it, you don't you don't want to like say too much when something's kind of not like locked in, locked in because you like kind of never know what's like, you know. Netflix should, could shut down tomorrow. You know, who knows? Yeah. It probably won't because I think they're making a ton of money. But it's like, it's just a weird industry that's very much built on sand. And like, things aren't like locked in until they're locked in. So I think it's yeah. like, I think it's that. That's why it's good to like, not go into, yeah, just like not go, not to go into too many details. Because I don't want to like, you know, if I were to like post on Twitter, uh, oh, I sold this cat show to Funny or Die. Uh, then like two months later, nobody's heard anything about it. People are going to be like, were you lying to us? And I'm yeah. like, no, I did. He said it, you know, but like, yeah. so I, I think that like, that's part of it. And like everything in Hollywood is sort of like, you know, built on sand is how I like to think about it. And then I think that there's also like, you know, I think that you want to be careful about going into a ton of details just because it's like, I don't think it happens a lot, but you don't want people to be like, I don't think that people like openly steal other people's ideas, but I think that like, I think that you, uh, I think that people will get sometimes get like um, accidentally influenced by your idea. Sure. So it's like, you know, if we go into like the whole pitch right now, somebody who's listening to it could be like writing on a show. And then like two weeks from now, they could be like, oh, I need a story idea. And they could like, we could have accidentally incepted in something from our pitch into their thing. And then six months from now, one of our episodes is on TV on another show and we're just like, oh no, like, you know. Two things on that. First of all, we won't go into too much detail. I just want to talk about sort of how to pitch something. Yeah. And second of all, actually That's three it. things. We are pitching Star Wars episode 10 though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, second thing is that happens like... Um, SNL is notorious for stealing sketches. Like when people, when you write a pitch deck for SNL, you basically sign off that like... Yeah. You know, all ideas are fairly similar and uh, this may show up. It's just a coincidence. But it, so many people have written about how they've submitted a packet to SNL and they've seen that sketch on SNL, you know, a few oh, yeah. weeks I, later I, or something. I, yeah, I feel like it's kind of a, a mark of accomplishment in the greater United States sketch comedy scene when uh, you submit an SNL sketch packet and then three weeks later, that one of your you don't get hired, but one of your sketches kind of like with slight changes winds up on us hell you know yeah. not, not i don't i don't not to say like I, I i believe in the good in people so i hope that it's not a case where people are just like well i'll take that but um you know like i do think it's like if you're like an snl writer who's reviewing snl packets then like four months later you've got to come up with like funny ideas for lady gaga you might like think of an idea that like you don't realize that you already saw in a packet or something like that so it's sort of like I think it's more of an idea being incepted into somebody like a movie inception or whatever, as opposed to like somebody just like flat out being like, and my co-writer is copy and paste. You right. Know? Right. I get that. I get that. Um, and on uh, sort of the pitch thing, I just want to mention this before we get too far away from it. I like um, sort of in the same way of you don't count the your chickens before your hatch. I was pitching this one show 
uh, with a friend of mine uh, who's been on this podcast before, Zuri Hall. And um, we pitched this show called Co-Anchor Confidential about uh, a local news show at Chess for Laughs on stage. It was like a Kevin Hart pitch panel. So, oh, so 10 of us pitched different shows uh, to Kevin uh, Hart, who was on stage. He bought all of them for his network, LOL, which I don't even know if yeah, that's yeah, around yeah. anymore. So he buys them all. And then we're like, oh, we sold the show. There was like press about it um, or whatever. And then I don't think any, maybe one of those shows got made at the end of the day. So, um, you know, for anyone out there pitching and have had that happen, that that is just how, how it goes, I guess. But you, yeah, you, it, you do all the work and then you get it picked up and then it just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, and, and there's like different levels to it too. Like um like I, I sold a show that I'm um working on right now where it's like I sold it, but like what that means it like there's a difference between selling a show and a show being greenlit. Oh, selling yeah. a show is like, oh, we're going to give you money for the idea and you're gonna like develop, you know, the uh you're going to like write the pilot, which is the first episode. We'll pay you to like write what's called the Bible, which is sort of like, you know, who are the characters, episode ideas. Kind of like it's basically like the Bible is uh, a document that if you give to somebody, they can look at it and be like, oh, I know what this show is. I know who the characters are. I know where it takes place. I know the tone, blah, blah, blah. And then um, you kind of do that process and you're paid to do that. And then after you turn that stuff in, then the network will make a call of like, will we allocate millions of dollars to producing this? Right. Um, so, you know, there's like different levels of like that kind of thing where like, oh, you could sell a show, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be on TV tomorrow. That yeah. means that like maybe it'll be on TV in three years or something, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in that case, I don't think we got any money for it. It just never even got there. But but that's a th this is kind of all leading to sort of what I want to get to and Again, I'm not saying we should say what our whole pitch thing is for all the reasons mentioned, but when you're creating a concept for a show, like there are a lot of people are like, oh, that could be a show. So many people say that, but what actually makes a good show? What, what takes a weird thing or a niche of some sort and then makes it universal in the way Batman is universal, but it's a weird thing? So um, I think that like, yeah, I think I think a couple things on that. Um, I think that there's, um, I feel like there's a lot of people that'll like, especially like folks that don't work in the entertainment industry, that'll like watch a TV show and then they'll say that was my idea because like five years ago they were like drunk with friends and they were like, what if uh, there was a TV show about zombies or whatever, and then yeah, they'll right, like right. think that AMC stole their idea for The Walking Dead, <laughs> and yeah. it's like. An idea for a show is like ideas are cheap. The um, the actual um, like execution of that idea is the show. So um, like I remember something that one of my old bosses would say when I was in my first Los Angeles job that um, the the TV show Survivor had probably been pitched around ten to twenty times in Hollywood before Survivor sold. So by that I mean. Like there was probably 20 years where people were like, what if Gilligan's Island was real? Like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and like that, that's like an idea. But like Survivor is hosted by this guy, produced by these people, 
what are the segments of it? What's the format of it? What happens in like minute 10 or whatever? It's like the development of the idea is what makes it Survivor as opposed to just what if Gilligan's Island was real, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So I think that like, you know, coming up with a show, it's like, uh, you know, you can have like the base like logline idea, which is sort of the loose thing of like, oh yeah, like what is this show? It's like a show about like, you know, the, let's see, um, what's like a, a show that's like popular right now, like Grand Crew, where it's just like friends hanging out in a wine bar or whatever, you know? And uh, like, that's what that show is on like a base level. But like, what makes it the show is that it's like starring Carl Tart, that it's written by these people. The script has jokes in it. What is the script? What are the characters? When does it take place? Like, you know, all that kind of thing. And I think that for me, it's like, I always try to like focus on um, when coming up with a pitch of like, what is the heart of the idea? Like, like specifically, like why, why do you think that this would be a good idea other than it would be a good show or be funny or whatever? And I think that for me, it's like a lot of that is boiling down to like, what's the, what's the, like, what's the thing about the show that like you really give a shit about? So like using, using Gilligan's Island as an example, like, um, like I, when I first moved to LA, um, I went to like a, a, a book signing by Sherwood Schwartz, who was the creator of Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch. Mm. And, um, he was like in his nineties, he like passed away just like, you know, uh, like a couple years afterwards. And as, as he signed the autograph, he died. <laughs> um, but, uh, but he, he like kind of gave like a talk before the book signing and, like he he kind of broke into a little bit of like what his inspiration for the Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island was. And the Brady Bunch was he read an article about how like divorce rates and remarriages were at like an all-time high in the 70s. And he thought, oh, like that is really interesting that like you're getting situations where like families are kind of merging. So you'll have like a few kids from this fam from this family and a few kids from this family, and they'll like merge and kind of like try to figure out how to become a new family so he kind of what what he cared about about the brady bunch was like normalizing different types of family structures you know like that two divorced people can get married and have their own kids and then kind of create a life together and like gilligan's island this this like blew me away when he said this um to him what gilligan's island was about was it was about the cold war and the idea that like um all of these countries have nuclear weapons and all it takes is like one to kind of fuck things up for everybody. So like that to him is what Gilligan's Island was about was the idea that like, we're all, you know, on this Island, on this planet together. And like one person can fuck things up. So we got to like work together and be careful and try to make that not happen, you know? So like, you know, I think that like those, those are, yeah, it's, it's, it's stuff where it's like, you know, when I watched Gilligan's Island, on Nick at night as a kid, I didn't like think that there was any deep level to it, but like to him, that's like the core of it. And then you like hear that and you're like, Oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. Um, and so I, I think that like any good TV show, it's like, it's important to figure out like, what's the thing that you really care about, about it. And like, that doesn't have to be like, it's like kind of the underlying truth that you want to follow on it. Um, and you know, I think that other than that, it's just like, you know, it's like, uh, I always like to write about characters that I can like, that I feel like I can like relate to. So a lot of my characters in pilots that I write and things that I pitch are like native dorks. Cause like I'm a native who's a dork who yeah. likes video games. Yeah. So it's like, you know, that's something that I can like 
that like I like to write from because that's like an experience that I can like authentically speak from in the same way that like, yeah, you're like a nice Midwestern guy with like anxiety and guilt and stuff like that. And it's like, that's something that, you know, you can speak from authentically and you can like make that feel real, you know, because right. it is real to you. Well, and the, the the universality of the native dork is like sort of fish out of water, maybe um, not meeting society's expectations of you and still being okay and the universality of like the midwest nice thing is like that idea that maybe i'm not enough as is so i've got to you know kind of be nice to sort of uh, you know be accommodating to that maybe that's the universal thing so it's like yeah. see, seeing this truth and what can everybody relate to underneath this truth sort of yeah what well, I, I think that that's like that's what I like about one of the things I really like about this stuff. And like, it seems like you think of things in the same way. It's like, it's like the comedy nerd over analysis of the, the bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, and it's like, but it's like, it's useful. Cause like, that's a lot of, uh, you know, it's like, it's easy to pitch jokes. It's like, you, you know, it's, you can pitch jokes about whatever all day, but like, you know, I feel like the conversations of like, yeah, but like, why is that funny? Or like, why is that relatable? And like, it's kind of like figuring out kind of like the math of it is yeah. like, and then it's like, oh, that's why this thing and this thing are like relatable to each other and why like these two characters would interact really well or whatever is like, oh, like though the, you know, the the paint of what they are is different. It's like when you get down to like the core of the thing, it's the same thing, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and sort of in in the realm of like, creating something and and going down that road and, and putting that out there like it's kind of like music in that very few there's very there's no music that's original these days it's almost yeah. like the same in comedy if you look at any show and you read um joseph campbell hero with a thousand faces yeah. talking about western mythology every western story in a large degree follows star wars their their sort of thing you know where the hero goes into the underworld to learn something brings it back there's atonement with a father figure like all these elements are in pretty much every show you watch so it's like you don't have to reinvent the wheel or get too crazy it's just finding your hyper specific characters that are well defined and then lay them over sort of a a universal uh issue in the human experience is, is that kind of right yeah it's like yeah it's like i feel like like the way that the way that stories are structured is really similar from story to story specifically in like yeah in like western storytelling but like we've never seen you know like we've never seen like a brony go through that just like a guy that really loves my little pony or whatever yeah you know like i think that like though we've seen like the structure of like stories it's like a pizza it's like you know it's like we all understand what a pizza is but like we've never seen a pizza with like gummy worms on it or something you know like and it's like oh you look at that as a unique thing but it's still a pizza you know right. i think that like stories are like that and like stories are like like the way that stories are made is like a recipe for pizza but like what makes it unique is your specific spin on pizza you know mm-hmm Mm -hmm. We're kind of running up on time and I don't want to uh, take you uh, too much past this. But I, I, before we go, I just wanted to see where do you hope uh, native represent representation in Hollywood 
gets uh, in the near term? I, I know. Well, I don't know. Where, where, where do you do you feel like we're on a good trajectory? Do you think Hollywood is moving fast enough? Um, and, and where do you hope to see it in five years? So um, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think that I think that for the first time, Hollywood is like listening to native stories and native storytellers in a real way in the hundred plus year history of Hollywood. And that's just like amazing to see. And it's so cool. And I feel so fortunate to be like, you know, even like a small figure in, you know, whatever this is, you know, the, and like, I definitely understand that I'm doing it like, you know, on the backs of, you know, like I said, 60, 70 years of people fighting for this thing. And I, you know, kind of, um, like, am fortunate to like be bear- be eating the fruit that they grew, if that makes sense. And, um, you know, I, I, and I think that there is like a really connected, um, sort of collective of people in native Hollywood, you know, like low hundreds of native folks working in Hollywood. There's maybe like a couple dozen native comedians total, um, doing stuff out there. And, um, like we're a small enough community that it's like, whenever there are like native Hollywood parties, it's like 40 of us in a bar and like everybody's there, like Taika Waititi's there, you know, like, yeah. And, um, you know, so I think that we're, I think that we're, we've got like the start of something really cool. My hope for five years in the future is that, um, you know, it continues to grow and people continue to like get opportunities and give opportunities. It's like, we have, um, you know, two native TV shows in the air right now. I said Reservation Dogs and Rutherford Falls. Uh, Spirit Rangers, the show that I'm working on, comes out later this year. So then there will be three. Um, you know, I, I hope that we don't stop there. I hope that um, there continues to be a desire for Hollywood to, like, give native folks opportunities in storytelling. I hope that, you know, I hope that five years from now there's 100 native TV shows. Because like I said, it's like everything that I've said in this podcast is, like, my experience. I can't speak for any other native person, even within my own tribe, you know, mm-hmm. um, like, uh, you know, native people liking cats is not a stereotype. Me <laughs> liking cats is my truth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, I, I, my hope is that like we get a hundred more native TV shows in the next five years so that we can tell more like nuanced stories about like, yeah, what's, what's, um, you know, reservation dogs is about a reservation in Oklahoma. What's a show about a reservation in Washington? What's a show about a reservation in, the Midwest, what's a show about natives off the reservation in New York? What's a show about, you know, um, you know, a native boy band who's trying to make it big in the big city or whatever, you know, like there's so much like nuance to our storytelling that like in so many different like perspectives that haven't been shown now, we're still at like the early stages of getting opportunities. And my hope is that like that continues and we continue to just get more and more opportunities and more and more people getting the opportunities to tell their stories. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I also don't want to be like, you know, the white dude asking, uh, you know, uh, the question to one native guy to speak for, uh, uh, you know, as you said, there are 300 plus tribes in the uh, registered uh, tribes in the u.s and they're all different and everything like that so i don't want you to think i'm doing oh yeah oh yeah that was that was less a you thing and more of a like it's like i feel like something that people throw about native stuff a lot is like this is this is kind of the inspiration for my the bear short that we were talking about is um like 
I remember like, the inspiration for that was a bunch of my friends were going to like a protest for the Washington DC NFL team when they were playing in Los Angeles. And a guy like commented on the Facebook event saying something the effect of like, my friend just got a DNA test and it said he was 15% Indian and he thinks the team name is fine. So everybody lay off. <laughs> so I think that there's like this tendency for people to be like, oh, I know one guy who right. like said this thing. So that means that everybody must feel this way. Right. Um, so, you know, it's like, I always like to caveat that stuff to be like, ah, I can only speak for me. And I know that's not you. It's just, I feel like sometimes like folks, like, you know, I don't want somebody to like listen to this and be like, yep, I know every, ev what every native person thinks about the Florida Seminoles or whatever, you know? Well, and it's a tendency for, you know, white people to, uh, at, well, I guess I can only speak for, um, myself. It's a cliche. I'm not just speaking yeah. for myself. It's a cliche that. You know, doing exactly what you're saying, a white person will sort of seek out the answer they want to hear from a person of a particular background yeah. that they don't want to take the time to change. So they'll find reasons that they don't have to change. So, yeah, for sure. Anyway, we can all fall into those uh, uh, pit holes, even, uh, you know, when the question's somewhat well intended. So, um, Good to just keep that in check on my end. But um, yeah, man, th this was a lot of fun. Do you have anything that I didn't ask that, that you wanted to go into? Uh, let's see. Things you didn't ask. Um, uh, Joey, why are you so funny? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, actually, a uh, thing to ask you, uh, just because I feel like we talk about cheese a lot. What's your favorite kind of cheese? Oh, gosh. You know, I... So Colby cheese is actually pretty good. And uh, they that's one that um, that they, you know, there's a lot of different cheeses in Wisconsin that are pretty uh, popular. Um, but Colby is made uh, right here was developed. I don't even know the the origin store. I'm not as good of a Wisconsinite as I should be I'm realizing <laughs> right now because I don't even know where the first put like Anyway, Colby, Wisconsin, that's where they make Colby cheese. And it's like a very unique cheese to Wisconsin and pretty popular outside. So I would say I and I, I enjoy it myself. What is your favorite kind of cheese? OK, so uh, for a long time, it was Havarti. Havarti is real good. It's like a really nice soft cheese. Um, I think that like lately now that like my friends have gotten really into like chartreuse tree boards or whatever yeah. where it's like a board with like you know crackers and cheese and meats and stuff like that i've started to really i feel like myself going toward the brie cheese a lot like oh, i think okay. i like soft spreadable you're, cheeses more than i like hard cheeses you know you're a soft cheese guy i pinned yeah, you yeah. for a soft cheese guy i could have told you that a while ago yeah know? i feel like that's a vibe i give off i feel like <laughs> i give like real soft cheese vibes. it's the cat thing man you, ca you can't be a cat lover and a hard cheese lover i'll tell you that right now yeah i just i don't like cheese that's crumbly you know oh yeah yeah i i you know i'm an equal opportunity cheese uh consumer yeah like all, all cheese is great like i don't like it's, it's like not to no i'm not no, i'm not like not trying to cheese shame anybody <laughs> I'm glad that we ended this talking about cheese. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, yeah, for sure. Thanks. Wait, should I plug my social media or anything like that? Or Oh, yeah, please. I usually plug it at the end, but let's just... Oh, have in that case. No, let's have you uh, say it because I feel like people listen more during the actual interview than once I start doing the outro. So, yeah, where can people... And by the way, Twitter is where I first found you. So, that that's uh, your tweets are great. So, Hell make yeah, sure thanks. to include that. 
Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Charlie, for having me. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Joey Tainment. You can follow me on Instagram at Joey Clift with like five or six eyes. The reason for that is a 12 year old took Joey Clift with one eye. So that I just had a bunch of eyes to it. Yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> this was years ago and now he's like 20. So I feel like I could just be like, hey, man, I will give you $50 for regular Joey Clift. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then, um, yeah. So follow me on Twitter. Uh, check me out on Instagram. And then, um, yeah, check out all my animated shorts, which I'm sure Charlie will drop in the chat. And uh, may the force be with you. Wink. And also with Star you. Wars. Yeah. It's <laughs> a little insider Hollywood talk to <laughs> tease what project we're working on. <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll see you later today on the pitch meeting. Okie dokes. Hell yeah. All right. Sounds good, buddy. We'll talk soon. That is it for this week's episode of the Cast. Make sure you follow Joey Clift on Twitter. That's at JoeyTainment, like Joey Plus Entertainment. You get it? At JoeyTainment. You can follow him on Instagram, Joey Clift, J-O-E-Y-C-L-I-I-I-I-I. It's a lot of I's here, F-T, but if you just search Joey Clift, uh, it'll pop up. You can watch him on Comedy Central. You can watch him on YouTube. Uh, great dude. Make sure you give him a follow. Give him your support. And if you'd like, you can support the Cripes cast by following Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or just telling your friends about it. Or, you know, rate the deal and, and write us a note. We'd love to hear from you. All right, everyone, that is it for this week. Everyone, make sure you watch out for deer and you tell your folks I says hi. Okie dokes. Bye-bye now. So and as always, folks, the Cripes cast is executive produced by Colleen Maraca and produced by Bridget Barons. All right, everyone, keep her moving. Watch out for deer and tell your folks I says hi. Wisconsin Jubilee. You know, sometimes when you're ice fishing, you put your foot in the walleye hole and go ass over tea kettle and you think you're done. No, you got to keep her moving. <laughs>